This is a Business Disability Forum podcast, sponsored by Open Inclusion, creating a more open world for everyone, from user insight to inclusive innovation. I'm here today with Corrie Brown, continuity announcer at Channel 4, voiceover artist and chair of Four Purple. Hello, Corrie. Hello, Lucy. (laughs) So, you know, we're talking about people behind the job descriptions here, and it would be great if you could tell us a little bit about what you do, Corrie. It sounds like an awful lot of different and interesting things there. Yeah, I think it's fair to say it is. I do um, do rather enjoy it. So, Channel 4, I am a continuity announcer, so we are essentially the people who talk on the television between the programmes. Uh, It involves quite a lot more than just talking on the television between the programmes, have a lot of script writing to do. We're obviously an editorial filter. We're essentially, though, a marketing tool, so we our job is to kind of keep the audience either on the channel that we are on or within the portfolio of channels and to message ahead to what's coming up. Obviously, to do the Ofcom regulatory piece as well, so if there's strong content of any description in the programme, then we have to warn in an appropriate way. And all the kind of stuff that goes around that. So lots of script writing, lots of talking to different people who've been involved in making the programmes and lawyers, etc., etc. So that's the, that's the bit that I do for Channel 4. Some of it's live, some of it's pre-recorded. The voiceover stuff, I'm a freelance voice artist, so I do predominantly corporate stuff, from wind farms to diamonds, give me a script it's all about bringing it to life I don't write that kind of stuff I just voice it yeah gob on a stick <laughs> <laughs> and then four purple is channel four's new uh disability network uh of which I am co-chair fantastic now we were talking the other day we had a bit of a, a pre-catch-up prior to recording this and you were telling me about you weren't always um doing continuity announcing and how you got into it so you're talking about your time doing local travel up north and stuff like that do you want to tell us a bit about maybe how you got into this particular role so when i was about 13 i think i won a competition on our local radio station and i went down and i realized that people were being paid money for playing records And I got very excited about that. And I thought, oh my God, this is an amazing way to earn a living. So I decided from that point I was going to be a radio presenter. Uh, When I came to do my degree, I was advised not to do a media degree because, you know, don't go putting all your eggs in one basket. Get some practical experience. So I did a languages degree, but I did it at a university that had a very active student radio station. Uh, so I did loads of student radio, probably more student radio than degree when I was at university. I like the way you skewed that to get to do the thing you really wanted I did, to do yeah. as well. I yeah. did, Even. And I look back now and I kind of think, God, I can't believe I did this. But when I um, did my placement year in France and Germany, so I lived in France for six months and lived in Germany for six months, I got myself a, a little show on a little local like tin pot station in this little tiny place called La Sensi Four. And yeah, I, I kind of think, oh my God, I, I genuinely can't believe I did that now looking back. But yeah. I did. And I came out of university, still wanted to be a radio presenter, did lots of swing shifts sort of towards the end of my degree at various stations. And then one of the stations that I'd sent my little C5 tape to, tells mm-hmm. you how long ago that was, yep. said, well, we haven't got any gigs here, but we'd love to have you on air. And if we could get you in with our traffic presenter provider, would you be a traffic presenter for us? Mm. And I was like, okay. So I moved up to Manchester and uh, worked as a travel presenter for about... Mm, a year, 18 months, something like that. And then from that, I got various gigs on stations. I did a... Um, I firstly, for the station that I'd done the travel news for, and then for uh, another independent 
group. And I got to a point where I sort of started to feel a bit disillusioned by it all because you start to realise it's very sales-driven and there was a lot of pre-scripted stuff that, frankly, was just, you were a bit like a sort of hired robot, to be honest. You know, Mm -hmm. this is what you say in this hour, this is what you say in this hour, this is what you'll play next. And it was like, oh, God, is this really... It's very prescribed, isn't it? exactly. And just at the time that I was sort of starting to think and realise, actually, I wasn't really that good at it either, if I'm really honest. (laughs) I was all right when I was presenting with other people, but I think when it was just me and a load of CDs and, and some links, it was just a bit meh. And I'd really sort of started to think, oh, heavens, what on earth have I, what path have I set myself along? And then a couple of friends of mine who I'd known from student radio days were working for the BBC, and it was back in the days when they had Ariel, which was their kind of, um, you know, in-house magazine. And they, two or three friends got in touch and said, they're looking for announcers at the BBC. And I was like, I've never even thought about what an announcer did. But I... um, Saw the job description and I was a bit intrigued and I filled out the old massive BBC application form that they have. And I didn't really take it that seriously because it was all very 11th hour and I knew they'd get loads and loads of applications. But I, for whatever reason, was invited for uh, an interview and an audition. So I came down to London and went into Television Centre and I thought, oh, I don't want to ever work here, it's too big. (laughs) never get to know anybody. (laughs) And I'd spent an hour or two in con, um, I had my BBC board, and I think probably because I wasn't that fussed about it, maybe I, it was a very genuine kind of, you know, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't that scared. I had an audition, I went away, and then I was invited back for a second round, and I was like, oh, suddenly I was, I was genuinely flattered that out of sort of 5,000 plus people that had applied, you know, I was still kind of going through the filter process, yeah. so of course I went back. And then I met some of the same people again, and then I really, really wanted to work there. And luckily, I was one of, I think there were three, four of us that they took on at the time. So then, yeah, I worked for the BBC for about three years, and then uh, somebody who I'd known at the BBC who'd gone to Channel 4 was involved in setting up E4, and she phoned me up one evening, and she said, "Um, they need a new announcer for E4, this new channel that we're launching, and I've told them about you because I think you'd be brilliant. (laughs) You'd never get away with this now, no. <laughs> you shouldn't get away with it yeah. now. And so my tape was sort of biked across, and I had a really informal interview in an open plan office, and they offered me a job on the spot, and that was 18 years ago, and I've been there ever You're since. still there. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's the story. Yeah. And what is it that you particularly love? I mean, we've been doing it for, as you say, 18 years now. What is it you particularly love about it that keeps you doing it? Oh thousand dollar question <laughs> I really like the I love the anonymity of it so mm. I like the fact that I'm doing a job where you are talking to potentially several million people but very few people know who you are mm. so I like that I like the fact that it's creative I like the fact that it's an environment when you're certainly doing live stuff that can change just like that and you've got to be okay with it I like the fact you don't take it home with you, so you deal with whatever gets thrown at you while you're there, but it's not a kind of bring everything home and worry about it when you're not there. You are the bum on the seat, you're responsible while you're there, and then you go home and somebody else is the bum on the seat. So I like all of that. And I love the fact that I do all of this for an organisation that is just so increasingly on it when it comes to embracing difference and stimulating debate and challenging perceptions and all that kind of stuff that Channel 4 is really famed for. Mm. And I do love the autonomy of the job, if I'm really honest about it. You know, we, we work within very set 
protocols, you know, obviously Ofcom, deadlines, all of that kind of stuff. But be, beyond all of that, you're very much your own, you know, you, you manage your time how you want, you write what you want, and unless you've written something really controversial, the chances are you get to say it. You know, yeah. it's all of that kind of stuff. So um, there's a lot about it that I really enjoy. I have found as the time has gone on, that I have wanted to do other things. And my way around that was to reduce my hours mm -hmm. and to then be able to utilise skills that I don't think that job uses. And I found that by doing that, I kind of fell in love with it all over again. Mm. It's really interesting. I, th I think being a mum kind of made a big... A, a, you know, I, I had to make decisions as a mother. Yeah. And I think those decisions actually turned out to be really good for me career-wise but also holistically because it's kind of it's opened up so many more other things and obviously Channel 4 has changed quite a lot in the last sort of seven or eight years since we covered the Paris in yeah. 2012 yeah. and there's so much more going on now in terms of our culture change and our you know embracing the whole diversity agenda and the inclusion agenda and now that you know we've got internal staff networks coming on stream and everything's happened in quite an organic way yeah. but you know now i'm a chair of a new network which is all about disability and that's not my day job you know all of us who who chair and are involved in networks is all about passion yes. but it's great to work for an organisation that has a culture that really wants that passion to thrive and to influence the direction of travel that we take internally absolutely so. And, and thinking about your role in um, as chair of Four Purple, do you want to tell us a bit about why that matters to you, Corrie, and why that's important? So I am visually impaired. I have a severe sight impairment, is the technical term. And I, for a very long time in my working career, never really talked about that kind of aspect of me. At work, when I started at Channel 4, it wasn't part of the onboarding conversation. I didn't know about access to work for incredibly nine years. <laughs> I even knew that they might be supposed to give me some software to be helpful. Yeah. So in all that time, you know, I'd kind of, I'd gone through school, you know, in a, in a mainstream school setting and probably really wanting just to fit in. And I think that kind of then translated into the workplace going into businesses that weren't really that great at having any kind of conversation. And I certainly wasn't great at kind of starting that kind of conversation. Yes. So it's, it's interesting because Channel 4 has changed in the time that I've been there. And I think as the business has kind of grown in confidence, yeah. I've probably grown in confidence with it a little bit. Mm. In fact, more than a little bit, I think would be true to say. And so, you know, 2012, obviously, we covered the Paralympics in London. It was a massive gear shift because suddenly, you know, so many people were having to have conversations about stuff that they probably felt really uncomfortable about, but did it because that was what was required for the output. And actually, you know, the impact of that was quite seismic. And obviously, one of the great legacies that came out of 2012 was the last leg. Yeah. And the whole, is it okay? Yeah. And that's the thing that we've taken on internally as well. It's become, you know, the e-learning training module, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so I think it's been a kind of quite a sort of slow but steady and very natural kind of journey. And I think as I've grown in confidence, we did a, a lot of work in 2016. So they made 2016 our year of disability. And we had a group of 
advisors came in from various charities and, and formed this wondrous group called Yoda, <laughs> which is our Year of Disability Advisors. And they kind of, you know, gave some professional advice to the channel on what they could be doing externally but internally as well. And one of the things that came out of that was, you know, that actually people engage really well with other people's stories. Mm. And so it was mooted that we should run, like Barclays have done and other big institutions, a sort of this is me kind of internal campaign. I've been involved with a, a diversity task force that was set up a number of years ago, so I've been involved with that sort of since its inception, which is a, a great group of people who are, um, you know, just are not necessarily all tasked with the diversity agenda, but some are, and some just want to drive it forward. And this group was was asked about, you know, what do you think about this whole this is me idea, and and it was deemed to be a great idea. And I got roped into being one of the, I think we did about nine or ten Are you the poster girl of it? I'm not the poster girl, but I was one of the people that made a film that was shown internally. And do we have a poster girl? (laughs) If we do, I don't know who it is. (laughs) God, if it was me and I didn't know. No, I don't don't know. But I mean, you know, we, we made these films. And I think for me, if I'm really honest, it was probably the most personally revealing thing that I'd done. It felt quite exposing. But I think it was quite important. And I think collectively the films were really powerful and they were all... um, Each one was released by an exec and sort of championed by execs. You know, the response was really, really positive. Mm -hmm. And I think that was sort of a big step in my journey to sort of being more vocal. So I think I've gone from that fear of I don't want to be I don't want to stick my head above the parapet and ask for anything to be done differently yeah. to you've got to own this and you've got to be able to tell people what it is that you need them to do you know to to make those kind of workplace adjustments and and quite often it's the really little things it's like I don't just ask for a presentation in advance to put it on my iPad because I want to be difficult it's because actually if you don't send me that I can't be part of the conversation in the same way as everybody else can be when you just turf up and stick it on the on the screen in the room and it does feel a little bit like turning a tank around and I think it's been a big lesson for me in my own resilience. I think it's made me realise I'm a lot more resilient than maybe I ever imagined I am because the more you the more you talk about it and the more you kind of engage with people and, and it becomes a two-way conversation, you kind of think the, the more important it is that you do it. Yeah. And actually one big lesson I have come to realise is I spent quite a lot of my 20s kind of really sort of thinking, oh my God, I've got to go up the management ladder. You know, it's that kind of, if I if I don't go up the greasy pole, then I'm not succeeding and I'm not achieving. And then I became a mom in my early 30s and everything kind of changed and I had to kind of rethink things. But what I've really, really come to realise, probably in the last six or seven years, in having more and more conversations around disability and around inclusion and pushing the agenda in, you know, I can see things that have changed at Channel 4 that have got my fingerprints all over it. And whether that's ever acknowledged by people or not, I know I had a big part to play, and that's really satisfying. And I think it's taught me that actually you don't need to be an important person up the chain. You don't need to be somebody with a big title to actually be able to be an agent of change. And I think for me that was a really, really important life lesson. And so now that we do have a network, and it's been quite an organic kind of Mm. starting, it sort of just feels like it's the right time to be advocating and to be drawing people together 
who, you know, the network's made up of all kinds of people. There are people who have an impairment or have a long-term condition, but there are quite a few people who are just wanting to connect, either because they've got family, you know, who's affected, or because they just want to make for a better workplace, you know, have a deeper, richer conversation and kind of change the whole way that we approach disability specifically. So... And I love the fact that you're talking about you're mirroring some of the stuff that's going on on telly, you know, from the is it okay stuff. I think that's really nice. You know, you kind of learn what works and kind of use it. Yeah, absolutely. Own it, as yeah. you say. Oh, completely. Yeah. yeah, the is it okay is really, it's just one of those things that's just stuck. Yeah, no, mm. it's good. So we talked quite a lot about inside of work. What about outside of work? I know you've talked about, you know, becoming a mum and all, all those mm. sort of things. Is there anything where you feel that you identify more as having a disability? in that sort of more personal space? Well, I'm a trustee of a charity called Living Paintings, an amazing charity that produces touch-to-see books for children and young people and adults who have visual impairment or have no sight at all. And we bring the visual world to life through raised images. And I think actually that work has probably connected me more with visual impairment than anything else has probably because you know I exist in a world that I've been so used to just getting on with it yeah it's quite a yeah. visual world television it is. as well, well really. TV, I know yeah there's a sort of irony to it but I yeah. got over that years ago but yeah I mean you're absolutely right it is and it is quite funny because I think people will just assume a lot of you know visually impaired blind people go and work in radio because you know, <laughs> that's what I wanted to do and I don't honestly think it had anything to do with, with yeah. vision necessarily but I think sound has probably always fascinated me at some subconscious level so yeah the living paintings thing I think is one way that I feel more connected to to the the VI world I'd probably also say actually podcasts and tech kind of stuff specifically I'm I'm a bit of a techie geek and particularly since Apple came along with their wonderfully inclusive product line I mean if I had to leave home with one thing other than my keys it would know that I'd have to take two actually would be my phone and it would be my airpods and so long as I've got both of those things I can function anywhere oh and a data connection (laughs) (laughs) a bit stuffed you haven't got one of those these days but you know everything you can access everything but also it's got it's got the great tools on it now that you know it's got magnifiers on it and and, and OCR readers and all those kind of things. So so I think, um, yeah, I think Living Paintings has probably made me vocal and it's probably made me realise how fortunate I am actually to be somebody with a severe sight impairment who has always worked. If there was one bit of advice you'd give to someone else in your situation or similar, that they could ask their employer to do for them? What one thing or a few things you think have really worked that you've maybe signposted employers to? I think first and foremost, I'd say to any employer, just listen. If somebody's got the guts to come and tell you what they need, you know, don't be flippant about it and don't assume that that conversation for them was an easy thing to start because Mm -hmm. actually you're asking somebody to talk to you about the thing that they probably have the most hang-ups about. And, you know, be considerate. If somebody has come to you and told you what they need, and it shouldn't be that they have to come knocking on the door either, it should be that the path is open and that, you know, that that conversation is encouraged, but don't just pay lip service to it. I'd say listen, 
because the person that knows what they need the best is the person that's coming to talk to you about it. Well, they're the one that's lived with it and know yeah, what's... They've exactly. tried and tested. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, what I find even now quite frustrating is that I, you know, you will have a conversation with somebody and it might be something as simple as... Um, Oh, I don't. Well, so a classic thing for me is if, if we're in a meeting and there's quite a lot of people there, it's really useful just to go around the table really quickly and just, you know, even if everybody else in the room does know each other, it's just like, okay, well, please just, I don't mind even if you say you're doing it for my benefit, but actually I would like to know who's sitting at the other end of the table yeah. who hasn't said anything yet. Yeah. Um, largely because I think sometimes it's quite important to know who is there and who isn't there as well, you know, for some of the conversations that happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so whilst it might seem a slightly odd thing to do, just respect that I've asked you to do that and don't make me feel like I've got to ask you to do it every single time we sit down in this kind of situation. Um, I also think yeah. it's incredibly useful with this conversation the other day that I've, I'm terrible at remembering names. So for me, that would just be incredibly useful to remember, put yeah. names to faces and yeah. go around the table. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. These things are often what somebody's doing for a particular reason actually yeah. has extra benefits. Yeah, and we, we find this all the time with yeah. disability, don't we? You we know, do. Captioning is great for people who need it, but yeah. it's also great for people whose English is the second yeah. language oh, or whatever. Absolutely. So absolutely. It's the same sort of thing, yeah. isn't it, really? Yeah. So. so it is, it's that thing, though, of if somebody's asked you to do it, just understand that that ask might not have been the easiest thing for them to ask in mm. the first place. So don't just do it that once. You know, maybe at the start of the meeting, just say, does everybody know everybody? Then at least that little door is open just yes. for a moment that you can say, actually, do you know what? Could we just go around the room? Yeah. Or there might be times when actually you don't know who everybody was because, you know, I had a meeting this morning and I happened to be one of the first people in the room. Uh, and so you're conscious of everybody as they <laughs> walk in and they say hello. It's, it's yes. very different if you're the last person to walk in. Yeah. You know? And the other thing is, you know, little things like, you know, if you know that somebody can't see properly and they walk into a room that's really crowded, it might be quite nice to show them to point out where there's an empty chair yeah. you know it's, it's sort of sometimes you kind of feel like it's a bit of a sport that they kind of but I think so much of it does come down to being considerate yeah you know that is the bottom line it's just use a lot of common sense and be considerate listen and 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 just know that what you're being told might not be the easiest thing to have been told mm -hmm. and therefore treat it like it's really precious and even um, things like when we walked into this room or I picked, I, you know, I came to greet you at reception mm. or whatever and we walked down the corridor, I was very aware of what's on the floor space. Is there any trip hazards? Oh, always. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, so I became aware of, is there anything I need to kind of almost, you know, boxes sticking out. And yeah. actually something we're quite aware of here because, you know, we've got a few colleagues with visual impairments. Yeah. You've got to make sure that, you know, they literally trip over things mm. if you're not careful. So, well, I work in a, in a business that, that is very inclusive in so many ways, but actually we have trip hazards all over the place. Yeah. But there does come a point at which you can't, you know, you can't expect everything to be changed to fit you. And you kind of also have that sort of sixth sense that just says, I can't go running down this corridor yeah. because the chances are somebody will have put something somewhere. Yeah. I mean, we've got chairs that are always the same colour as the carpet. And it's just, you know, or I was, you know, you sit in a meeting room and all the chairs around the table are white. And then all the ones around the back are black. And you just kind of think, well, they're the same colour as the carpet. And actually, if you've got you know, certain eye conditions, you'll home in on the stuff that's lighter against the carpet and then you mm. completely don't see the other stuff. But yeah. I think there, you know, there has to be an element of acceptance that you can't create a perfect environment either. No. But, but certainly I don't think it's right to expect things to be done in a different way if you haven't asked for it. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to ask you that question we ask everybody is to describe yourselves in three to five words or what you would say to... <laughs> I know, it's that awful it's question. So I know. Um... 
Okay, I think first and foremost, I am proactive, really proactive. I hate seeing things not being done when they could be done. So yeah, number one, proactive. Number two, I'm progressive really progressive mindset I think I you know I'm very open to change and I don't think I always used to be if I'm really honest I think I used to be somebody that was really kind of like oh we do it very well actually why do we need to change anything <laughs> again I think probably being a mum maybe working in a in a live environment where things can change mm. um, I was thinking of the mum thing because nothing stays the same no, for five doesn't. minutes does it, it so really you have doesn't. to keep changing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so that's number two yeah. I'm pragmatic Lots um, of peas here. I know. Lots of pra. Lots pra. of pra words. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I am pragmatic. I think mm. I'm I'm quite a realist. I think I'm, you know, that good sort of critical friend that wants things to change and and but has a that that kind of level of of knowing that you can't change everything all at once. But what we can change, we need to get on with. And yeah, I think I would say I am curious. Um, not as in I'm weird, as in yeah, um, yeah. Intrigued I'm or, intrigued. Yeah. I think people particularly intrigue me and what motivates people to do things. So I'm maybe not so interested in you know how water comes out of our taps, but I am really endlessly fascinated by people. And I think probably if I hadn't have worked in the media, actually, I probably would have been a psychologist or something like that. There's a big pop psychologist in me. But I am endlessly fascinated by the way that people think and the way you know what motivates people to do the things they do mm -hmm. um, and to be the way they are so yeah curious mm -hmm. and um, I think I would say being a mum defines me yeah because I think so many of the choices and the things that I do and the way that I live are defined by being a mum mm. that I couldn't not have it on the list really no I know mm. I had to do it as well you, yeah. can't, you can't ignore them you'd like to sometimes but apparently you're not allowed no, no, to no you're not allowed to do no, that I know. no I've realised that no, it's I've got a slightly channel 4 type question here actually it's about what sort of superpowers do you have so what things you're really good at should get my trumpet out and blow it really loud <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I am a good listener I think I'm em empathic, em empathetic empathetic empathic yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know whether those things are born out of my visual impairment or not, but I wouldn't be surprised if it did influence them. Mm. I think largely because I don't... I try really hard not to be judgmental as well. That's, you know, it all ties in together, doesn't it? But, yeah. you know, I really don't like that feeling of the, the expectations being less as soon as people realise that you can't see properly. Mm. And I think... And because do you find that happens quite a bit? Less. Yeah. But probably because I've worked somewhere for a really long time and people yeah. know me and most of the new situations I find myself in, there's a connection that's come from somewhere. So whatever teams it might be that you're part of, I think it's probably been a really long time since I just rocked up as little old me with nobody knowing anything about you before. Yeah. But yeah, I, it is... I think it's still an unspoken thing. I'm sure in some situations people just expect that you're going to deliver less or that you are going to be the weak link in their chain or whatever it might be. Um, I don't encounter many situations where I actually palpably feel it. Yeah. But I... You know when you just know that it bubbles yeah. sometimes. And, yeah. Um, so I, I think I... 
as a, an instinctive thing, don't do that to other people. I absolutely don't do that to other people. I always have that moment of kind of thinking, if you're in a really crappy mood today, there's probably a reason for that. Yeah. Yeah, I am empathic. Um, I'm a good listener. I'm really organised. Uh. Largely because, actually, if I put things down, I really don't want to waste my time having to find them again. So it's just easier. And also, if I go to somewhere that I haven't been before, you just want to be prepared. So... GPS is brilliant, mm. having all that kind of stuff in your arsenal is wonderful, but actually having a bit of a clue as to what the door looks like or that kind of yeah. stuff, or this station has how many exits, what kind of, you know, what exit. I've got all kinds of amazing apps on my phone now that can tell you about exits to things and, you know, um, obviously Street View is wonderful because it's like deja vu when you actually go there. You know, yeah, it's all that yeah. kind of stuff. So, But I do think I am organised and I am you know, prepared. I'm like a proper girl scout. I'm really, I'm generally quite prepared. I probably would hate actually to have a job where literally they can send you somewhere in 10 minutes time and you've just got to know exactly where you're going and how you're going to get there. Maybe I'd acclimatise to that and I'd shock myself and it would all be fine. But I think actually I, I do like having that sort of moment to kind of be prepared and to know what you're doing. Yeah. One of the questions I really always like to ask people is if you go back and tell your younger self something or give yourself a piece of advice or do something differently, what would that be? Because I always think that's really fascinating. I would tell my younger self to own it. Own it and not be at all embarrassed about it. I'm talking about my vision impairment, clearly. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> to not devalue yourself in any way because of it and just to kind of... I wouldn't go so far as to say, oh, I see it as a strength or, you know, I'm really not one of these people who goes, oh... Do you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that I can't see properly because I just wouldn't be the person that I am if I could. Because yeah, yeah. actually, I think, though, if I could see properly, I, I'd love to know what, I, what might be achievable, actually. Yeah, yeah. I feel so, you know, I, although it's changed the person I am, not having a leg, yeah. I think, actually, I'd still quite like to have a leg. Yes, exactly. And I think that's yeah. fine to say that, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, You deal with the, hand, you know, the cards you've been dealt, yeah, but actually... Completely. Yeah, if I had a choice... If you had a choice, you'd quite yeah. like to... I would. Yeah, yeah. Twenty twenty vision would yeah, be nice. Completely. Which is why the fact that technology is getting so much yeah. better is so exciting. Yeah. Because actually, my younger self, thirty years ago, mm. when I was at school and computers were really still quite new, if somebody had said, "Look, do you know what? In thirty years' time, you're going to have a little device that you can carry around in your handbag, and that will do so many of the things for you that you struggle with now," maybe it wouldn't have felt like such struggle back then in yeah. some ways and certainly when I talk to parents now of children who have been diagnosed with eye conditions I can tell them quite genuinely not to think it's the end of the world mm. I mean yes it's bloody inconvenient sometimes and yes I think well certainly I would wouldn't choose it but I do think that you know the fact that the technology is getting so much better fills me with loads of hope I mean I'm so excited about when there's a wearable that literally will talk to you. Your glasses will just tell you what's in front of you. And it's not that far into the future yeah. now. It will happen. You know, we've got Microsoft are doing some brilliant work around it at the moment. And I'd be really surprised if within the next five years, there's not something mm. that's doing that kind of job. So it's kind of making up for the bits of me that don't work properly. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think I would say to my younger self, first and foremost, just don't be embarrassed about it. And... And bring other people along with you. You know, don't. Mm. I, I, I'm not an evangelist about it. 
but I feel it's very important to open people's eyes excuse the pun but you know (laughs) whenever there's an opportunity to yeah because I don't think you can expect people to understand your situation if you're not prepared to let them into your world a little bit so you know there has to be you know it has to be a two-way kind of thing and it's about expecting other people to be more considerate but if you want them to be more considerate then you've got to give them the tools to be more considerate about so yeah I would definitely tell my younger self to just just own it own it yeah so, Corrie, thank you so much for your time today. You certainly have owned it. I'm very, thank you. <laughs> very pleased to have had you with us today to have this chat. And thank you ever so much. Thanks. It's been a, a huge pleasure. This podcast series is sponsored by Open Inclusion, helping business be beautiful, inclusive and effective. Find out more at openinclusion.com.